Well, I want to begin by uh, wishing a happy Easter and uh, reminding of the resurrection to any of you who are from a background that originated in the Eastern Hemisphere uh, because of some very ancient differences in the way calendars were calculated. The Eastern Hemisphere is celebrating Easter today, so along with our brothers and sisters around the world, we want to remember the resurrection of Christ on this Sunday as well. So uh, especially any of you who are from the Eastern Hemisphere and your backgrounds want to congratulate you on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our study of Isaiah chapters 7 through 12. And uh, last time we left off at the end of chapter 8, so we're going to be picking up at chapter 9, verse 1 this morning. And we're kind of looking at chapter 7 through 12 kind of as a unit. This is the second major section in the book of Isaiah. So we're going to do a three-part series on uh, these five chapters. And just to kind of refresh your memory, because it's been a couple weeks uh, since we were in the book of Isaiah, in our first message, I pointed out that chapters 7 through 12 have an alternating series of peaks and valleys. There are three mountain peaks of messianic hope that are interspersed with three valleys of judgment, of warnings of judgment. And so... Uh, kind of in this back and forth way, the Lord through Isaiah is addressing the remnant, the believing remnant, and giving them hope, and then addressing the unbelieving nation and warning them of judgment. And so as you read chapter 7 through 12, you kind of notice this kind of this, this peak of hope and then valley of judgment uh, series uh, that uh, goes on and on back and forth throughout the, these five chapters. Now, last time we saw that the first section begins in a prophetic valley with what I called the refusal, and that's in chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. If you remember, in this section, God urged King Ahaz to trust him and, and look to him to save the nation from this impending invasion they were facing. And he even invited Ahaz to ask for a confirming sign. He said, Ahaz, you can ask for a sign as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven, that will confirm to you that you can trust me that I will save the nation. But Ahaz refuses. He just flatly refuses, saying in chapter 7, verse 12, I will not ask. He rejects the Lord, refuses to trust in him. And so chapters 7 through 12 begin in chapter 7 in the valley of Ahaz's shocking refusal to trust in the Lord and his tragic decision to turn instead to the wicked pagan king of Assyria for help. He had a clear choice between trusting in God and trusting in the wicked king of Assyria, and he chose the wicked king of Assyria. This is the great refusal. Well, from the valley of Ahaz's wicked refusal, the text then climbs to a mountain peak of prophetic hope and gazes across seven centuries to the virgin birth of the Messiah. In chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, we have the messianic prophecy of the coming Redeemer. Since Ahaz had refused to believe any sign in heaven or earth, God turns away from addressing Ahaz and then addresses the whole nation and tells them that he himself will give them a sign. And in chapter 7, verse 14, he says that this great sign is... As follows, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So even the refusal of Ahaz did not mean all hope was lost. There were gonna be consequences of this refusal, this rejection of God, but someday a redeemer is going to come. He's going to be born of a virgin, and as verses 15 through 16 tell us, he's gonna be born into such a terrible level of poverty that his primary diet in his toddler years will consist of curds and wild honey. But the Redeemer, though born into difficult conditions, is going to come, and he will be God with us. Then the text descends from that peak of messianic hope down into another valley of judgment as chapter 7 verses 17 all the way through chapter 8 verse 12 describe to us the rebellion of the nation the rebellion of the nation back in chapter 5 if you remember the nation was confronted for falling into three massive errors the error of individualistic materialism the error of immersive merriment and the error of inverted moralism. That was the confrontation which took place in chapter five and now in chapter seven and eight, this downfall is described again. The people as a whole had already rejected God and so when Ahaz then refuses to turn to God for help, it made the nation's downfall official. It confirmed it and pushed them past the point of no return. And so the people's rebellion and its terrible consequences are poignantly described in chapter eight, especially in verses six through eight, where the Lord says, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, that's a reference to his love and compassion being compared to this gentle, ever-flowing stream that brought water to Jerusalem. It says, instead they rejoice in resin and the son of Ramalia. Now therefore behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all its glory. And it will rise up over all its channel and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. This is a description of the fact that because the people had rejected God and put their trust in the wicked king of Assyria, that's gonna open the door for the wicked king of Assyria to come sweeping in like the mighty Euphrates and and dominate the land and subjugate them. They're gonna be subjugated, it says, like being in water up to the neck. Then in chapter eight, verses 16 through 22, there's a discussion of what I've called the doctrine of judicial hardening. And if you remember back from our study of chapter six, verses nine through 10, we talked about that doctrine of judicial hardening. This is when someone rejects the Lord over and over and over again to the point where God says, fine, go your way. And he gives them over to their own wickedness, their own sin. Well, in chapter eight, verses 16 through 22, we see another example of judicial hardening because Isaiah stops giving his attention to the whole nation and turns his attention only to the remnant, to those that he calls my disciples. Look at chapter eight, verses 16 through 18. He says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me 
are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. This is Isaiah saying, because the nation has so rejected the Lord, just as the Lord told me in chapter 6 where he says, go and, and you know, preach to these people, look, keep seeing but don't see, right? Keep hearing but don't understand. Keep hardening your hearts. This is judicial hardening now. Isaiah is turning away from the crowds and he's saying, bind up the testimony, bind up these prophecies amongst the remnant, amongst the believers who actually receive the word of the Lord. So there is a turning, just as the Lord had turned away from Ahaz, now there is a turning away from the people to the remnant only. In verse, chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. And so chapter 8 ends by drawing this really poignant law in the sand as Isaiah says in chapter 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What does it mean to have no dawn? It means to be trapped in a never-ending night, in, in, a, in darkness which is never ends, where there's never the dawn that brings light to the darkness. And he says, if they reject this word, they are trapped in darkness from which there is no escape. To the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They have no true light. They have no true hope. You know, that is the sad circumstance of millions of people, even many who profess to be Christians. They have turned away from the scriptures. And when you turn away from the scriptures, you turn from light to darkness. The scriptures say, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And if you take the lamp and you set it on the shelf and you turn aside, you will wander off into darkness and there will be no dawn. So to the law and to the testimony, and there are many, many people who need to hear this call to the law and to the testimony. There are churches, there's whole denominations who need to heed this exhortation. Back to the law, back to the testimony, back to the Bible, back to the word of God. Anything else is to be lost in darkness. Anything else is to have no dawn. If they do not speak according to this word, you can be sure they have no dawn. Don't follow those who lead people off into eternal darkness. Only heed those who speak according to this word. Well, that's where we left off last time. And since chapter 8 ends with this warning of judgment, it ends in verse 22. It says, They will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and they will be driven away into darkness. There's a really sad end here in chapter 8, verse 22, and that's where we left off last time. So we find ourselves beginning with the question, is there any hope? We asked that question at the end of chapter 5 where, where the condemnation of the nation is being laid out, and we said, is there any hope? And, and the answer of chapter 6 is yes, the hope is in the holiness of God and his majesty. And now again, we're asking the question, is there hope? And 
The answer given in chapter 9 is going to be, yes, there is, and that is in the coming of Jesus the Messiah. In chapter 9, we're going to climb out of the valley to another glorious peak of messianic hope because the child promised in chapter 7, verse 14, the Redeemer promised in chapter 7, verse 14, is going to save his people from their sins and he's going to bring the everlasting kingdom which was promised to David and he will do those things because he is the ruler. He is the ruler. And this is chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Read along with me as we read this vital messianic prophecy, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace." There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is one of the most important messianic prophecies in Scripture. Now, if you're reading the ESV, you may have noticed something as I read from the New American Standard Bible, and that is, in the New American Standard, it uses a bunch of future tenses. Uh, the people who are in darkness will see a great light, and a child will be born to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders. But if you're reading the ESV, the ESV translates all of those as almost like their past tense. The people in darkness have seen a great light. A child has been born to us. Well, what is this difference between the New American Standard and the ESV and some of the other translations? Well, they're all translating what is known in Hebrew as a prophetic perfect. What is a prophetic perfect? Well, it's the use of a past tense to describe a future event as being so certain that it is described as if it has already occurred. We, as, uh, as uh, someone pointed out to me in between services, we do this in English sometimes. If someone says, um, you know, hey, um, you know, hey, uh, you know, can you do this? And someone says, Done. Well, what does that mean, done? Well, that's a past tense, but what he's saying is, I'm going to do it, and you can be so sure that I'm going to do it that I'm describing it as if I already have. Done. And that's what the Lord is saying. He's looking towards future events, and he's describing them, and he's saying, done. 
Will the people see a great light? Done. Will a child be born? Done. Will the government be on his shoulders? Done. Will his kingdom ever end? No, it is done. It's finished. But I do think the New American Standard is is the best translation for English readers because it just more clearly points out that these are future events. And the fact that these are future events is is really clear uh, because chapter 9, verse 1 contrasts what happens in earlier times with what happens later on. And so uh, we know for certain these are speaking of future events. And this passage, looked kind of viewed as a whole, reminds us that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. God had promised to David in what's called the Davidic covenant that one of his descendants would rule from his throne, from David's throne, forever. And that the Davidic kingdom would never end. And God who makes a promise keeps it. And this is a prophecy about the fulfillment of that promise. Despite the refusal of Ahaz, despite the rebellion of the people, the Redeemer is still going to come and he will rule and he will reign forever and he will restore the nation. These are promises so certain they can be described with the prophetic perfect done. As we study this vital messianic prophecy, the first thing I want you to notice is first of all the contrast between chapter 8 verse 22 and chapter 9 verses 1 through 2. In chapter 8, verse 22, as we read it, I hope you noticed how, it's just how dark it was. The words gloom and darkness and anguish appear in chapter 8, verse 22. Well, those same words appear again in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, but as something that the Messiah is going to resolve. There's a striking contrast between the gloom the anguish and the darkness of sin and rebellion and the light, the love and the life which the Messiah is going to bring. The Redeemer is coming, the Savior is coming and he's going to rescue us from gloom, from anguish and from darkness and lift us into light and love and life, eternal life. So the chapter starts off with this really striking contrast. And again, I I need to pause and say, what side of that contrast are you on? Are you still in the gloom and the anguish and the darkness of rebellion and unbelief or have you stepped into the light, the love and the life of faith in Jesus Christ? Well, there's a second thing I want you to notice and that is that chapter nine, verse one, clearly says that what follows is going to be a discussion of what happens in earlier times and then what happens later on. And he says earlier times using a plural. And so the expectation that verse one creates is that there's going to be uh, some earlier events, plural, and then there's gonna be something that happens later on. So there's at least more than one near-term event or initial event and then something that those initial events are leading to. That's the expectation uh, created in the reader's minds by the wording of verse one. And this is a very common thing in Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy often indicates something that is near, something that is 
after that and then something that is even after that. There will be both near a near fulfillment, a, a farther fulfillment, and then a final fulfillment of these prophecies. It's like a man who's kind of standing on a mountaintop and looking out into the distance and he sees one mountain range in front of him and then beyond that he sees a second mountain range and then beyond that he sees a, a third row of peaks off in the distance and that is how the Lord is revealing the future to Isaiah. He's describing some events which will occur before Messiah arrives. He's describing events which occur when Messiah arrives and then he's gonna re refer to events which occur after Messiah arrives. So there's going to be things that happen in the earlier times, at least two, and then something which occurs later on. The third thing I want you to notice, and this is very, very important, is to notice the structure of chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is very important for the proper interpretation of this passage. In verses 1 through 3, the prophecy is introduced, right? And this is kind of like the premise is laid out. This is the good news being announced in verses one through three. These verses announce the good news that the light of hope will dawn, that the Messiah is going to save people out of darkness and restore their joy and their gladness in his presence. That's the prophecy. Then, in verses four through six, is the explanation of how this is going to be accomplished. In verses four through six, there are three explanatory clauses, and they all begin with the word, if you notice in the text, the word for. Verse four, for you shall break the yoke. Verse five, for every boot and cloak will be for burning. Verse six, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Those are all three phrases that start with the same Hebrew term, the term we translate as for or because, an explanatory sentence or clause. And then verse seven is the conclusion or the summary of the prophecy. So the prophecy is introduced, it's explained, and then it is summarized and concluded. Introduced in verses one through three, explained in verses four through six, and then summarized in verse 7. In verse 7, the final results of the Messiah's mission are revealed. Now, why is this structure so important? Well, I want to just, again, walk you through it. As I said, back in verse 1, the phrase that both earlier times and events which occur later on are being discussed, and now then the structure of this prophecy are really vital for interpretation. And so I want to kind of walk you through this. We'll kind of go verse by verse and point out a few things along the way. Notice, first of all, in verse 1, that it says the Messiah will first shine the light of the gospel from Galilee. So verse 1 says that he's going to make this place, this Galilee place, glorious. And verse 2 says that this light is going to dawn during a time of spiritual darkness. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And this is a prophecy of the conditions which existed in Israel before the first coming of Christ. If you remember, because the nation so rejected the Lord, after the book of Malachi, the Lord just stopped talking to them. There's 400 years where there was no prophets sent to Israel. 
The Lord had always had his prophets with them. But here is this time period of 400 years. Scholars call this the the silent years where after Malachi, the Lord just simply remained silent. Isaiah talks about the Lord hiding his face, but Isaiah says, but I will wait for the Lord. So the remnant, the believing remnant, even though the Lord was silent for 400 years, they kept waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah, believing that he will come, expecting that he will come. Meanwhile, the unbelievers just rejected it and went their own way. But the Messiah was going to come into this time period of great spiritual darkness. I want you to notice something. It's very, very important that Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, is cited in the New Testament. In fact, quoted in the New Testament, and that's in Matthew chapter 4. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. When the Old Testament is giving prophecies, because those prophecies include things that happen in earlier times, plural, and then things that happen later on. And so we're kind of in the Old Testament and we're looking forward to events that are coming, uh, things that are happening in the time of the prophets, things that are happening at the first coming of Christ, and then things that are happening at the second coming of Christ. How can we know which parts of the Old Testament prophecy are fulfilled when? Well, the New Testament reveals to us which parts of the prophecy have already been fulfilled and which are still future. And Matthew chapter 4 is going to do that for us. Notice Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Quote, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So notice what Matthew says. He says that the fact that the light will, the Messiah is gonna begin his ministry in Galilee and that it's from there that the light dawns, that part, he says, was fulfilled at the first coming. And he says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, pointing to the kingdom yet being future. And notice also that Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 3 are grammatically a single unit, but Matthew cites only verses 1 and 2 as being fulfilled. He omits, deliberately omits, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 3. He says that verses 1 through 2 are fulfilled in the first coming, but he ends his statement of what has been fulfilled at that point. And this is an indication to us as the Lord revealed to Isaiah what was going to occur. Matthew is saying, look, as of the first coming of Christ, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 have been fulfilled. But verse 3 is still future because Jesus from that time on began to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's very significant. 
The introduction in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 3, contains two distinct prophecies. In verse 2, it says, People who walk in darkness will see a great light. That has been fulfilled. But the second prophecy is in verse 3. It says that the Messiah will multiply the nation and the people will be glad in his presence. And this multiplying of the nation, this restoration of the nation, that is not said to be fulfilled in the first coming. In fact, there's an indication that that's still future because it says from that time on, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first part of the prophecy in Isaiah 9 verse 2 describes the light that the Messiah will bring. And the second part of the prophecy in verse 3 describes the Messiah's restoration of the nation. And Matthew says the first part was fulfilled at the first coming, but he very clearly omits the second part because the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 3 is still future. Verse 3 says that the Messiah will multiply the nation. Listen to what it says. It says, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And that, by the way, divide the spoil is a reference to dividing the spoils of war. So verse 3 says that the Messiah will multiply the nation. Well, what nation is being discussed? It is, of course, the nation of Israel. And by the way, those who think that God has rejected ethnic Israel, has rejected the Hebrew people as his chosen people forever, and somehow replaced them with the church... They may be able to explain away one or two texts if they work really hard, but there are literally hundreds of direct statements throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, which distinctly say that God is going to fulfill the promises he made to the Hebrew people. They are his chosen people, his chosen nation, the nation of Israel, and God will fulfill the promises he made to them in the Abrahamic covenant and in the Davidic covenant and all the other promises he made. And notice, by the way, that the still unfulfilled prophecy of verse three says that the people of Israel will be glad and rejoice in the presence of the Messiah, in the presence of God. This is another indication that verse 3 is going to be fulfilled at the second coming. The Old Testament prophets look forward to the second coming and they say the nation which during the first coming rejected the Messiah, they shouted crucify him, only the remnant believed, only the remnant received him. John says he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. So they did not rejoice and they were not glad in his presence at the first coming, but they will rejoice and be glad in his presence at the second coming because Zechariah says that when he returns, it says that the Hebrew nation will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. And there will be this great national repentance and national revival of the Hebrew people in the end times and as Romans chapter 11 says, all Israel will be saved. This is coming. When the Messiah will multiply the nation, when he will increase their gladness, and when they will be glad in his presence as with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoils of war. And that, by the way, is a 
connecting phrase to what happens now or what follows in verse four. Because now in verses four through six come the three explanatory verses which all begin with the word for. And these are explanations of how this comes about. Now, in our Western mind, we almost always list explanations chronologically from earliest to latest because our culture has trained us from infancy to think in chronologically ascending order, right? So, for example, let's say that I was going to, I was saying to you, I was gonna say, hey, I'm going to get a doctorate degree. And then I was gonna explain how I would get a doctorate degree. So I, I would say, I'm going to get a doctorate degree, and this is the Western way of explaining. I would jump back in time and say, and I'll do that by going to elementary school, then junior high, and then high school, getting a high school diploma, and then getting a bachelor degree, and then getting a master's degree, and that's then how I'll get the doctoral degree. But that's the Western way of thinking about things. In the Hebrew culture and in the Hebrew way of thinking, if you're going to talk about a distant event, and you're gonna explain how that distant event happens, you don't jump back to the beginning and go in chronologically ascending order. You start with what you've said you're going to do and explain how you got there. So you say, I'm gonna get a doctorate. Well, how? I'm gonna get a master's degree. Well, how are you gonna get a master's degree? I'm gonna get a bachelor degree. Well, how are you gonna get a bachelor degree? I'm gonna graduate from high school. So they will often explain things in what we call chronologically descending order because it more clearly shows the cause and effect relationships between what happens in the final event and how you get there from the earliest event. And that is what verses four through six are going to do for us. They are going to describe the explanation of how the Lord restores Israel in chronologically descending order, starting with the event which happens nearest to the restoration and working back to the event which begins it, which is the virgin birth. So verse three looks ahead to the final fulfillment of the Messiah, Messiah's mission. Verse four lists what happens right before the final fulfillment. Verse five lists what happens before that. And verse six lists what happens even before that and what starts the whole process. So when we put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience, it makes perfect sense why it is written in this way and why the explanations are given in this order because they would be asking, well, how is this possible how's it going to happen this is he Isaiah is sharing this with the remnant and they're seeing the whole nation has rejected the Lord and even the king has chosen this Syrian king over God so how exactly is the restoration of the nation where all of these the, the nation is going to rejoice in the Messiah's presence how can that happen and the Lord is going to give three explanations how is God going to multiply the nation? How is he going to make them glad with his presence? How is he going to do that? Well, he explains in verse four. For God will break the yoke of the oppressors. Well, how is he going to break the yoke of the oppressors? The explanation is in verse five. For God will destroy the wicked oppressors so completely that not even their cloaks or their boots will be left over. Well, how will the enemies be vanquished? The explanation is given in verse six. For a child will be born to us and that child is mighty God. So the prophet is looking forward to the restoration of Israel. And he's anticipating that people are saying, well, how is this going to take place? And he says, how is it going to take place? Well, God's going to break the yoke of your oppressors. How is he going to break the yoke of our oppressors? He's going to defeat their armies. 
How is he going to defeat their armies? He's going to send a child. And that child will be mighty God and he will be the prince of peace. So in Isaiah 9, after the prophecy of the final restoration of Israel is given in verse 3, God anticipates that the people will be wondering how that could possibly happen. And so he gives three explanations which trace how that will happen back to the event which starts it all, which is the virgin birth, the incarnation of Christ when the Messiah comes. And the point he is making is that the key event, the event which begins this series of things that God is going to do, which is going to culminate in the people being glad in the presence of God, it all starts with a child. A child born of a virgin, born into poverty. But that child's going to change everything because he is mighty God. He is the prince that's going to bring this eternal peace. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Well, before we get too deep into discussing verse 6 and the titles of Christ, I want to talk a little bit more about verses 4 and 5. Look at chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, the first two explanations. He says, For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire, right? That verse five is talking about the, the destruction of, of the military equipment of the enemy all the way down to their cloaks and their boots. So verses four through five is a prophecy that the Messiah will rescue Israel from their oppressors and so utterly defeat their enemies that even their cloaks and boots will be destroyed. By the way, if this is sounding familiar, it's because it's described in great detail in Revelation. When the Lord comes, when the Antichrist is leading the hardened enemies of God to surround the remnant of Israel in Jerusalem, and then Christ returns, and he annihilates them even down to the cloaks and the boots. So it is really important to understand that the Old Testament repeatedly prophesies that the Messiah will wage war and the Messiah will conquer and defeat and annihilate the enemies of God. This is repeated throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah, according to the Old Testament, will come and he will give his life to save his people from their sins. Isaiah 53, he'll be pierced for their transgressions. He'll be bruised for their iniquities. He will, according to the Old Testament, rise from the dead. He will, according to Psalm 110.1, ascend to heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father, listen, until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And then the next verse in Psalm 110 verse 2 says, then you will stretch forth your scepter from Zion and you will rule over the nations. Psalm 110 verses, verse 1 is the most often cited Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It's so important, it's the most cited one. And that verse says that after the death and resurrection and ascension of the Messiah, he will be seated at the right hand until his enemies are utterly and totally defeated. 
Well, I've often heard people say, hey, you know, you know when Christ came, when, the, you know, he, you know, when he was born in Bethlehem and then began his ministry and he came into his own and his own did not receive him. I've often heard people say, well, the reason they didn't receive him is because they, they were expecting a conqueror and he came meek and mild as a servant to, to give his life as a ransom. And their whole problem was that they were expecting a conqueror and they, they were expecting a lion and got a lamb. They were expecting a conqueror and got a sacrifice for sin. And sometimes people portray that as if they had the wrong expectation of the Messiah. I've heard people say the main error of the people of Israel was that they wrongly expected the Messiah to be a conqueror. But the people's expectation that the Messiah would defeat their enemies was firmly rooted in Old Testament prophecies, such as the one we just read in Isaiah 9, 4 through 5. The people were not wrong to believe that the Messiah would conquer evil. They were not wrong to believe that he would establish a kingdom of peace and righteousness with Jerusalem as the capital. They were not wrong to believe that the Messiah would rule and reign on the throne of David forever because that is what God had promised in the Davidic covenant and it's what is reaffirmed here and what is taught in literally dozens of passages. Look at verse seven, for example, in Isaiah nine. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, what's gonna accomplish it? The zeal, and the phrase there is Yahweh of armies. How is this gonna come about? Yahweh, who commands the heavenly host, the heavenly armies, he'll make sure this will happen. They were not wrong to expect that God was going to finally and ultimately defeat Satan and the coming Antichrist and the hardened enemies of God who follow them. They were not wrong to believe that. By the way, this is why during Jesus' ministry, what are the disciples always arguing about? Hey, when the kingdom comes, who's gonna get to sit at his right hand and who gets to sit at his left hand? You know, who gets to be prime minister and vice prime minister in the coming kingdom? Even, even their mothers were bargaining for a better spot, right? It's why the crowds at the triumphal entry thought that Jesus was gonna come in and take David's throne. It's why even after the resurrection, turn to Acts chapter one, what did the disciples ask the Lord even after the resurrection? Acts chapter one, verse six. Christ says, raised from the dead, he's with his disciples for 40 days, and this is what they ask him in Acts chapter one, verse six. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? See, this was not an ignorant question. This was a very informed question. They had read and studied the Old Testament, they knew that Isaiah had prophesied that the, that the Messiah will come and die as a sacrifice for sin. He would rise from the dead and then the kingdom would be restored, would be established and restored and the Lord of hosts will do this and the kingdom will have no end. And they're saying, so now Lord, is it now? Is it now? Is what you promised gonna happen now? Now notice, Jesus doesn't answer by saying, oh, you silly disciples, that has nothing to do with it. There's not gonna be any kingdom. I'm not gonna de defeat you know, Satan and the Antichrist and the enemies. None of that. This is all just a spiritual analogy about, I don't know, some religious thing or something. 
That's not what he answers at all. When they say, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He answers in verse seven. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's saying there is a time which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but it's not yours to know. It's not yours to know when it will happen, but you can be sure it will. And then he gives them their mission. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You are to go now as my ambassadors and preach the same message I preach, which is repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is coming. The Father has fixed the date by his own authority, but right now you're being sent out to tell people the good news that they can repent and believe and be saved from the wrath to come and Peter says God the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because God is being patient because he wants more people to come to repentance and so Christ is seated at the right hand of the father waiting until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet that date is fixed it is coming but we don't know when it is we will have we have a mission to do in the meantime so Jesus doesn't tell them that they got the event wrong he just tells them they couldn't know the timing Someday Jesus will conquer. He will come again, and he will restore the kingdom to Israel. He will fulfill the Davidic covenant. He will rule and reign on the throne of David from Jerusalem over all of the nations of the world because it says all, and Revelation talks about all the nations of the earth bringing their glory in to the reign of the Messiah. The people of Israel were not wrong to expect the restoration of the kingdom. They were not wrong to expect that the Messiah will conquer evil and rule and reign. What they were wrong about is something very, very personal. They thought that they could receive the restoration without repentance. That's what they were wrong about. They were not wrong to expect the kingdom. They were wrong to think they could enter the kingdom without repentance. They were wrong to expect they could receive the promised kingdom and reject the authority and the identity of the king. They forgot that the Messiah, according to prophecy, had to save them from their sins before he would save them from their subjugation. They were slaves to sin and subjugated by the Gentile nations. They wanted to be rescued from their subjugation to the Gentile nations without being saved from their sin. But the prophecy said, first the Messiah will save his people from their sins and then he will save them from their subjugation to the pagan nations. So the people were not wrong to expect the Messiah to conquer. But they were wrong when they expected him to do so without first dying as a substitutionary sacrifice for their sin because that had been prophesied in Psalm 22, in Isaiah 53, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and in many other passages. You see, they, they, they didn't want the repentance from sin part. They only wanted the kingdom part. But one precedes the other. But don't be mistaken, friends, as we read both Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament and New Testament both prophesy that after the Messiah dies for sin, after he rises from the dead, after he ascends to heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet and he will come again and he will, as verse four prophesies, break the yoke of the oppressors. 
as we explained earlier, the series of events which leads to the future restoration of Israel begins with the incarnation. Because when Isaiah says, hey, this restoration is coming, how? He's going to break the yoke. How is he going to do that? He's going to annihilate the armies of the Antichrist, of the wicked. How is he going to do that? He's going to send a child. That's where it all starts, with the virgin birth. A child will be born to us. Next time, we are going to talk about verse 6, and we're going to see in verse 6 what this child will do and what, what he will do and who he is. The thing I want you to be remembering today, though, is that God keeps his promises. The certainty of God's fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is why we can be so certain that he will keep all of his promises to us because the New Testament says we were grafted in. Lord, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God, that it is impossible for you to lie, that you have sworn and you will not change your mind, and that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Lord, as we see in prophecy, that is true of all of the promises you made to ethnic Israel, to the Hebrew nation, your chosen people. And Lord, it is the certainty of your fulfillment of all of those promises, not allegorically, not spiritually, but actually and in truth and in, in real history in real time and space that makes us so certain that the promises that you have given to us as believers will also be fulfilled literally, truly, and in time and space and history in the future. Lord, fill us with that confidence as we see these glorious truths unfold. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.